Hi there, and welcome to the Wayback Music Machine podcast, the show that takes a light-hearted look at the week that was in rock and roll history. I'm Tony Stewart. I'm Aaron Badgley. And Aaron, isn't it hard to believe that this is road trip number 62? Unbelievable. 62 trips and each one better than the last. You betcha. We're inching closer to that magical number 75, but I've, I've got to say, it feels like just yesterday when we crossed number 50. It feels like yesterday when I crossed the magic number 50. <laughs> <laughs> same here, my friend, same here. So we've got an interesting trip lined up for today. What's on tap? Well, we have a public service announcement, Tony, today, a special public service announcement. Oh, that's right. How to uh, avoid the Hell's Angels. That's right. If you find yourself surrounded. Yeah, yeah using a specific dance move. So that'll be uh, very valuable <laughs> information for people. <laughs> Well, what do you say we get to it? And uh, I think we're going to start, what, July 21st, 1973, with a little talk about Jim Croce, aren't we? Yeah, let's start there. Okay, we'll be right back. So here we are. It's July 21st, 1973, and we've never in 62 episodes talked about this gentleman i don't think we're talking of course about jim croce and why are we talking about jim well this is uh this was a kind of tragic and bittersweet because this july 21st 1973 he had his first number one on the u.s singles charts with a very classic bad bad leroy brown sadly three months after this he would uh, die in a plane crash yeah, really tragic because it seemed like he was finally starting to get some traction with his career, right? And uh, uh, do you like Jim Croce? I do, and 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 he's an artist, kind of like John Denver, you know, where people don't talk about him. I don't hear him. I don't hear his music on the radio all that much. I mean, I hear it on Sirius, you know, um, satellite radio, but like Toronto radio, I haven't heard Jim Croce in years. Yeah, I love How about you. Do you like him? Do you yeah, like him? I love Jim Croce. And I've got to tell you, I think I've, I've told you the story before, but um, Bad Bad Leroy Brown was the song that convinced me that I was going to be a musician someday. Um, I was sitting in, I, and, I, and I've told this story before. I was grade four, and I was sitting in, a, in our elementary school gymnasium watching a middle school band who was visiting playing bad bad Leroy Brown and I remember hearing the song on the radio and I loved it and it was like a lightning bolt like I want to do that I always remember that so that this song has a little bit of special significance for me do you like I, I maybe this is an unfair question but do you recall what it was about this particular song that caught your grade four's attention you know well I mean I think the first thing would have been of course the beat um, but the lyrics mm. the story telling the story because it's a great story that's in the tune, right? Yeah, yeah. And and the the yeah. chorus had such a good hook, right? You know, meaner than a junkyard dog and all that stuff. It's it's a great song. <laughs> I I just it's interesting it's that that it, that's the song because you know when we talk about music and you talk about your love of jazz and clarinet music and and you know I I, I just I find it interesting it's because this is. What would you classify Jim Croce? Would you go? Uh, would you go folk, folk rock? Folk I think rock? you've got How to say maybe, maybe folk rock. He's a pretty tough act to classify, though, because you know, then you get songs like "You Don't Mess Around with Jim," uh, which is another great song, isn't that? 
Oh, it's kind of, well, I mean, there's so many classics, and they and sadly, some of them became classics after his death. But yeah, you don't mess around with Jim, um, Operator. Uh, I like Time in a Bottle, Time in a Bottle, uh, Operator. What are I mean, there's so many great, great songs, but success didn't come that easy to him, did it, Tony? No, no, he struggled and he had to work a series of odd jobs while he was trying to make it. And you know what, I found interesting. I watched one of those, um, behind the music documentaries about him. And while he's doing all this stuff and trying to be a musician, he's living, you know, out on a farm in the middle of nowhere, uh, which I always found strange. And I mean, I guess, you know, some people just don't want to be in the hustle and bustle of the big city, but it's certainly not an easy way to make your living when you're not connected by being right in the center of things, don't you think? Well, you would think that if you want to become a singer-songwriter, you would either A, locate in Chicago or L.A., or New York, you know, go to work at, like Neil Diamond, would go to work at the Brill Building, or Carol King, who worked at the Brill Building, hone your craft to get noticed, get, so you're right, it's kind of, he kind of did things his own way though, right? Yeah, for sure, All, always, but he had a partnership with a guitarist and a, and a fellow songwriter, now I always, I'm not sure how you pronounce his last name, uh, Maury Muleisen, how do you say that, do you? I'd say Muleisen, yeah. Yeah, and uh, you know, they, when, whenever, if you're looking on YouTube, folks, for old Jim Croce performances, which you should, uh, Maury was a, was a fabulous guitar player. And uh, Jim generally would play Lay Down the Rhythm, and Maury would take all the lead guitar parts. And it, it, it really, really nice sound, those two guitars as well. Yeah, he, he, it, was, it was very different for the time. I mean, if you, you want to compare him to, say, James Taylor, but... His, his James Taylor's music was very different than what Jim Crochet was doing in the early seventies. It, it was very distinct. I mean, you, there's no mistaking when you when again I don't hear him this often on the often on the radio, but when I, I remember a kid, you knew instantly it was Jim Crochet. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know he instantly. had his he had his breakout, didn't he, in 1972, and the album was called "You Don't Mess Around with Jim." But let's go over the singles that came off of that because there were three that. Uh, three hit singles right uh, or charting mm-hmm. singles time in a bottle which we talked about uh and then bad bad leroy brown was his only number one during his lifetime and i'm guessing the other one must have been operator i mean it's operator yeah operator yeah now he was italian american which i'm proud to say um his parents how do you pronounce those names how do you pronounce those names tony okay so they were italian americans from trasacco and balsorano in abruzzo and Palermo in in Sicily. So, well played. There we lovely, go. Lovely. <laughs> and you know his his biography gets more interesting too, right? He when he got married, he converted to Judaism uh, because his wife was Jewish. So uh, Ingrid Jacobson, and he converted to Judaism after they got married. So and got married in a traditional Jewish ceremony. So really, really interesting yeah. guy. Oh, and, and did you ever hear his son play, A.J. Crochet? I have, yeah. Very different than his dad, but very talented in his own. I wonder what ever became of him. He was there for a while. He was in yeah. the spotlight for a very short time. Very yeah, good, you, very, you know. Yeah, Nick wasn't, you know, huge, but certainly I remember uh, hearing about him and and, uh, and learning that it was Jim's son. Yeah, that's very cool. Now, what did you pick for, we're talking July 21st, 1973 here. So uh, the charts, looks like you picked the top five albums, right? I did in the U.S. on Billboard. And um, 
there's a reason because you know there's two artists i'm proud to say i own four out of five and again we're going to play the 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 guessing game tony which one don't i own okay i'm guessing number two (laughs) am i correct you are correct although i like them now more than i did when i was younger just i'm just saying i think i've got to agree with you on that one um not a fan of the material so much but man karen carpenter was a was certainly a talented woman wasn't she yeah she was she had an incredible voice and not a bad drummer and richard could arrange music let's be honest he he could he could put uh things together so yeah, yeah. I, I i appreciate them more now than i did i think same here I, i'm just not a big fan of the material no because you know it's a bit too saccharine for me <laughs> yeah same here same here but yeah let's go over this chart yeah, it's the top five album charts on the U.S. Billboard album charts. Number five, Paul McCartney and Wings with the brilliant Red Rose Speedway album, which had the week before been number one, by the way. I love Red Rose Speedway. My Love was the big hit off that. Paul Simon is number four with the incredible There Goes Ryman Simon. Yeah, good chart. Love that. I love that song. Our album. Number three, Pink Floyd. They begin their 50,000 years on the charts with the dark side of the moon at number three. <laughs> like they're well up over a thousand weeks, aren't they? It's it's something. I think well over like a thousand that. weeks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, number two is the Carpenters, who we were talking about now and then. And number one, uh, George Harrison, living in the material world. So George Harrison actually kicks McCartney at a number one. Which is, that's and pretty McCartney. hilarious, actually. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I love the I love the rival. And they would I the, the the solo Beatles would release albums close together to see who would go number one. And Ringo's album comes out and knocks for George off number one. But anyways. Um and Jim Crochet was sadly at number thirty seven on the album charts, although he's number one on the singles charts. He was number thirty seven with uh, Life and Times, but it was going up and it would eventually go top ten um before he passed away. But there you go. Now, are you ready to do our little public service announcement? for people i think we we've got to tell them so to do that though we're going to have to stay on july 21st 1973 but we're going to have to hop across the pond to derbyshire is that how you say it that's how you say it yeah derbyshire yeah uh and we're going to be talking about the buxton festival so we're going to just take a trip across the pond and we'll be back in a second Tony, you and I are both big fans of the what we call the odd stories. This is an odd story. Um, it's it's in- interesting, but it's odd. And I, I just want to set the scene, folks. Buxton <laughs> is is a small spa town about a thousand feet up over the moors of Derbyshire, and they used to have, and they still do, by the way, festivals uh, in this town in the summertime. The, the festivals have changed because of this concert, by the way. So let's talk about this festival from 1973, Tony. <laughs> yeah, where do you start? So the lineup now. The lineup's um, great. Yeah, the lineup's fantastic. I'm just going to read off some of the <laughs> some of the acts. Canned Heat, Nazareth, the Edgar Broughton Band, the Groundhogs, Sensational Alex Harvey Band, Medicine Head. Um, but you also had the Hells Angels at the festival. <laughs> so I'm sure people can start to put two and two together and see that where we're heading in a certain direction here. So, but, but not just one or two Hells Angels, Tony. No, a whole bunch of Hells Angels. 
<laughs> which does not bode well for the festival. So they arrive in full force and proceeded pretty promptly, I think, to drink the site dry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but it is what happened next that we start to wander into um, like twilight zone territory. So what happened next? Well, then when their money ran out, <laughs> they went into the crowd and started asking for money from the crowd. And this is Chuck, Be Chuck Berry is on stage by now, by the way, guys. So Chuck Berry, the Chuck Berry is on stage and he's watching what's going on. And, you know, <laughs> He's, he's getting a vibe that people aren't being asked nicely by the Hells Angels. So Chuck Berry, the creative genius he is, does something really super un original here, right, Tony? Oh, this is this is quick thinking. This is hilarious. On Chuck's part. But before I, I say what Chuck did, I have to ask you, would you have put money in the hat if you were there? Tony, not only would I put money in the hat, I would give them my own hat. Uh, how about you? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> probably, you? probably too, especially... After that whole, was this after the Altamont thing with the stones? It, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> so I think I would be, yes, sir. How much would you like? But hey, uh, hang on. Let me see what I got in my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, Chuck Berry, incredibly quick thinking. Um, he decides that he's watching this whole thing go down and he decides, hey, I'm going to show one of these Hells Angels how I do this duck walk because I mean, the hell's angels had basically taken over the show at that point. So he said, they're probably, they're probably hammered too, by the way. Oh yeah. No kidding. Um, so he decides to show, uh, one of the hell's angels how to do his duck walk properly and get this folks. I, uh, this is fantastic. So he duck, he duck walks from one end of the stage to the other and he disappears into the wings. <laughs> And what happened next, Aaron? I'll let you take it over from here. I'll pass the baton so the, over. <laughs> the band's still playing, and the angels are bopping around. <laughs> Chuck Perry runs to his car and drives off. It's like, and he doesn't return. He just he makes a break and runs off. Yeah, that is fantastic. Now, I wonder if he got paid for the gig, you know? Well, you know, probably not, because he used to get paid after the gig in cash. I, I think he just wanted to escape with his life. But... You know, he wasn't the only one that did this. I mean, the Groundhogs, they were one of the main acts of the show. They they pull up and they see what's going on and they just turned around. <laughs> <laughs> they don't perform. They just, they just, oh, you know what, man? I don't want to be part of this. And another band called The Move, who turned into uh, ELO, uh, Roy Wood, he just, he sees what's going down and just gets a really bad sense. He splits. So quite the festival, eh, Tony? Oh, my gosh. And just everything about this festival was <laughs> was a disaster. And even the 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 whole way that they promoted it, you know, it was held on a place called uh, Booth Farm, and it was high on the yeah. moors above the town. It looked like it must have been maybe an old abandoned World War II army <laughs> camp behind a wrought <laughs> iron fence, and the the promotional. Uh, stuff was saying oh it's a five acre shopping site and licensed bars we've got all those and it was uh, one hot dog stall which apparently <laughs> wasn't all that <laughs> sanitary and then uh, someone selling big the big cans of beer from the back of a car there was no sponsor no Bud Light no American Express <laughs> or anything like that but uh, the toilets were apparently also known as the Moors. So that just caps it off nicely, doesn't it? 
that's concerning. <laughs> <laughs> that's everything about, you know, and, and let's face it, 70s festivals were the thing, especially in Europe. And I mean, they still are. You you look at any magazine, what's going on this summer in England and Europe, there's literally dozens of festivals. Now, what's interesting is that after this festival in 1979, they, um, they call it the Buxton Festival, Summer Festival of Opera, Music, and Literary Series. I think they're trying to dissuade. I don't think many Hells Angels are into opera. I could be wrong. <laughs> exactly. But uh, what an odd series of events. Like, just- It's so funny. Can you imagine the unsanitary hot dogs? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, as when we were doing the research, eh, we, we saw this story and it's like, well, yeah, we've got to talk about this one. This, this oh, yeah. definitely deserves a mention on the show. So now let's move on to your chart here. You picked, it uh, looks like, the top five albums in the U.K., I just have to say, Tony, that this is a story that we don't ever want to lose. I think it's... <laughs> no, no, it's fantastic. So, folks, if you find yourself surrounded by Hell's Angels, teach them to duck walk and then scurry to the nearest car. <laughs> That's right. So thank you, Chuck Berry, for that public thank service. Thank you, Chuck Berry. <laughs> so, so I did the top five UK album trips because I wanted to contrast it with the American that I did previously. And there's only one album that's in both top fives. Number five is David Bowie, A Lad Insane. I love that title, A mm-hmm. Lad Insane. Great song. Number four, George Harrison, Living in the Material World. Number three, I, I believe a favorite of your household. <laughs> Mr. Relaxation himself. <laughs> Get the car, gets out. Now, the album, I know the song is And I Love You So, but the album is called And I Love Her So by Perry Como. Number three. Number two is a duo that I can't find a whole lot about. Maybe one of our listeners can write in Peters and Lee Phillips with We Can Make It. And number one is a soundtrack album to a film starring Ringo Starr and David Essex. So a film's called That'll Be the Day. And you know, Tony, it's a film about um, a working class bloke, Northern England, who becomes a rock star with some mates. Could be the Beatles. And it was written by a guy named Ray Connolly, who wrote articles for New Musical Express and wrote a really great bio on John Lennon. So there you go, number one. And I'm reading a Ray Connolly book right now about Elvis, actually. So an Elvis That's right, bio. I forgot, you are. That's the same guy. So Ray Connolly, who wrote that book you're reading, wrote the script for That'll Be The Day. I knew I, I knew there was something we talked about Ray Connolly recently. So. Yeah, you know what? I'm just ringing the bell for a sec here because that's just cool, so... <laughs> That's very cool. All right. And you know what? Speaking of cool, you've got to check out the commercial I found. So I'm going to put this on. This is a commercial from 1973. We'll take our commercial break and we'll be right back. If you grew up anywhere in Texas, especially La Grange, you knew what was sold at the chicken ranch. Now ZZ Top has a new single called La Grange, a tribute to Edna's fashionable ranch and boarding house, better known as the Chicken Ranch. Just let me know if you wanna go to that whole got a lot of nice girls. Grange, only a taste of what you can hear on ZZ Top's dynamic blues rock album, Tres Hombres. If you don't have it, get it. Lagrange, the single, Tres Hombres, the album, on London Records. Isn't that the greatest commercial? Fantastic. You know, I just, I, 
they don't do commercials like that for albums anymore. That's a great commercial. Yeah, yeah. I just, as soon as I found that, I thought, oh, we've got to put that in the show. So this, uh, you know, the last segment was a little bit lighthearted, but this is not lighthearted, but I thought we should talk about it. Um, July 23rd, 2011, we're in London, and this is a is a tragic event, a life taken way, way too soon. Of course, I'm talking about Amy Winehouse. She was found dead at her home in North London, only 27 years old. And what a what a tragic ending to such a promising career. You know, and what makes it all the more sad, have you you've seen the documentary on her? Um, which one? Because I, there's a few of them out there, right? But there's one there's one where her father and her quote unquote husband just are vile. Like it, it was almost like they were invested in keeping her on some kind of substance, you know? No, I haven't seen that one. I've seen another one, but I haven't seen that one. I'll have to look for that, but it's tragic. It's, I think it's just called Amy. And, um, her, there's one scene where she's in rehab and shortly before she passes away and she's in rehab and her husband is mocking her by singing rehab. Oh boy. That's classless. Do you remember the first time that you heard Amy Winehouse sing? Yeah, I actually do remember. It was um, it was on a TV show because I used to watch a show called Later with Jules Holland, and it was before she made it over here. And she sang she sang Back to Black, which I lo- my favorite song by her. Do you remember? I do. I do remember hearing her, and I remember just being gobsmacked. Like what a what a talent. She had uh, the most unusual, distinctive voice, don't you think? Yeah. Um, un- you can't compare it to anyone. Her own style. She had a great, great producer for her second album, which became her biggest album, Mark Ronson. But yeah, uh, yeah her voice was just phenomenal. And her delivery. Uh, and she was also very likable. When she wasn't... Um, you know, when you see early clips of her as a young woman, she's funny, she's full of life, she's very creative. Yeah, so, so tragic. And did you ever see the the behind-the-scenes footage of the duet that she did with uh, Tony Bennett? Yes, I where, have, actually. Yeah, where Tony, she comes in and she is nervous, like nervous. And he just takes her under his wing because he's the seasoned old veteran and coaches her and she's willing to be coached and does a beautiful job. And he's talking about her afterwards saying, you know, one of the most interesting voices that he's ever sang with. And I thought that's high praise coming from Tony Bennett. Who's sang, if you look at his duets album, he's sung with everybody from Paul McCarty to Sinatra to Streisand. Yeah. Yeah. I just High thought, praise indeed. High praise. Yeah. It was just wonderful watching, uh, how she was like a little kid right around him. And, uh, and he just totally treated her with respect and took her under his wing and, and produced a beautiful piece of music as an end result. You know what? I should add that to the playlist. Don't you think? Yeah, that would be great actually. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to do that right now, but it, it, it's one of the saddest stories. It's, and it's also that 27 club, you know? Yes. yes. How yep. many artists did we lose at 27? You know, and hopefully we don't lose too many more, but it was um, just tragic watching her descent. And, and, you know, because there's that uh, footage out there of her on stage near the end of her career and she's not even coherent and, and you can tell, you know, she's can't even stand straight and she's trying to slur through her words. And it was so sad. Yeah. 
it's 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 a heartbreaker. It really is. And and um, as, do you have a favorite song by her? Well, I love. Uh, I mean, uh, just the ballsiness of rehab. Yeah, is a great song. Back to Black is great. I love that song. That's my that is, favorite. Back to Black. Oh, there's the. I mean, uh, me and Mister or Mister Jones. What's the title? You know what song I'm talking about? Yeah. Oh yeah. gosh, like just a, a phenomenal talent and i i was always a fan of her band as well because it's just so old school with the horn section and uh loved it i always wanted to see her live i was always hoping that i'd catch her live show in toronto or something you know yeah she would be fantastic live actually tremendous yeah. tremendous singer now let's take a look um we're at 2011 so i'm gonna go out on a limb here aaron okay and yeah. now maybe i'm wrong maybe i'm wrong but i'm guessing that out of the people were talking about on this chart it's a very different type of chart that you've got here but i'm guessing that you don't have albums by a lot of these artists would i be correct or what (laughs) (laughs) i have albums by three yeah that's about it for me too but uh there's there's uh, some on here that i just wouldn't waste my my money on you know but i i wouldn't waste the stream to no. be perfectly honest. Yeah, exactly. I'd, give I wouldn't just even to be blunt. Wouldn't want to give them their, you know, point zero zero six of a penny or whatever it is they get. Uh now you picked, I love this though, the top five concert grosses on Billboard for twenty eleven. So let's go over this chart. Well, it was actually for the, yeah, for that week in twenty eleven. And so if you you look at the amount of money, Tony, it's just I mean, each concert is like, whoa, are you serious? So Number five was a festival called Hot 97 Summer Jam featuring Lil Wayne, Dipset, Wiz Khalifa. I don't know. And they made $4.7 million. Well, you know, I, I couldn't even name one song by any of them. So just saying. You know, Tony, nor can I. And that's why we're best friends. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it um, reminds me of a saying, right? I guess for all those people who went to those concerts, bad taste isn't a crime after all. I'm just surprised they made almost $5 million. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> wow. I mean, you're right. Um, you're right. Bad cra- no, it's not a crime yet. Not yet. Number four is U2 and a group called Interpol. Uh, they were in Chicago. They made almost $6 million. Number, and I do have U2 albums, just saying. Yeah, same here. <laughs> Number three, U2 and Florence and the Machine. Do you like Florence and the Machine? I am not that familiar with Florence and the Machine, full disclosure. Uh, are you yeah. a fan? I am. I, I think they do some pretty interesting music. And they were in Miami. U2 was busy that week. They made $6.8 million. Number two, I'm not, I'm sorry, I'm not a fan of hers. I don't have, I don't begrudge anyone who is, but Taylor Swift with, Need to Breathe and Randy Montana. Love the name. You know what? I am not a, a big Taylor Swift fan in terms of the songs. I am I am becoming a big Taylor Swift fan in terms of her stance on what mm. she's doing with that whole where she's taking back control of her career and her music because mm-hmm. she, uh, you know, the backstory of this is fascinating, right? The rights to her songs were purchased by a guy who she can't stand. She considers him to be like one of the sleazier people in the music business, Scooter Braun. Uh, and that says something. Yes. And uh, he bought her back catalog for $300 million, which means he owns her music and he can decide how it's going to be used. 
And the only way around that, so kudos to her, the only way around that is for her to go back and take back control by re-recording all of her songs so that she owns the masters. And then what, in essence, what that does, and this is absolutely brilliant, don't you think, is it makes his collection worthless because she's re-recorded all the masters and she's all she needs to do is say to her fans, get this version, listen to this version, you know. And they have. They've responded. And and she records them all with note for note. So there's very it's kind of like, can you spot a different? Okay, so Tony, his name is Scooter. Okay, let's start there. And yeah. he, is he not the manager for Justin Bieber? I, I think so. Uh, perhaps. I yeah. think so. Right, once, at one time he was Scoot, because I remember who, who names the kid. Would you name your kid Scooter? Yeah, uh, God, no. But, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, he's got that reputation, though, as one of the one of the unsavory music business types. So good for her. Um, yep. I have utmost respect for her for doing that. And uh, like I said, I'm not I'm not a huge fan of the material. It's just not my taste. But man, do I have respect for her as a as a musician and, and uh, as a person for doing that. Good for you. I agree 100%. And also, she's quite funny. Yes. I, I saw on, I saw on Facebook, she did a thing where she was um, talking like someone from Minnesota, and I was just on the floor laughing. She did oh. it just perfectly. <laughs> and now, number one, I mean, obviously, we've both got albums by this guy, but let's let's. Oh, talk. yes, we do. Number one, Roger Waters, live in Zurich, of all places, but he made $10 million in one night. And, and he just he's just courting controversy here in Toronto. Have you heard about this? No, what happened? He played Toronto last weekend. He did two nights, sold out at the, not the Rogers, the ACC. Yeah. Didn't get a review, no mention on radio, nothing. And he came out and he said, you know, Toronto Paper spent so much time talking about the weekend's canceled show. They didn't talk about my actual show. Oh. And he said, and he, and then he went one step further and said, look, I have nothing against the weekend or Drake, but let's face it, I'm way more important than these guys ever will be. I, I did wrong. hear a little bit about that. Yeah. Wow. That is a controversial thing to say. I mean, I agree with them, but, uh, <laughs> but still, wow. That's a, that's a ballsy statement, isn't it? Well, he's been known. He doesn't, he doesn't mince words and, and his point, And I liked his point. He said, write about the weekend by all means, but why would you ignore a concert that sold out two nights? Like, why would you not? He's, and it's a valid question. No, I agree. Why? You know? Yep, it sounds like something the CBC would do, to be honest, you know. Well, let's not go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But you know what? It is time for our Memphis to Merseyside moment. And we're going to be talking today about a fortuitous meeting that had a monumental impact on the career of the Beatles. So stay tuned, folks, and we will be right back. So for our, Mer- our Memphis to Mersey, or Merseyside segment, Tony, we're looking at a date, July 24th, 1967. Do you know, on that date, the Beatles meet the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. He's lecturing on transcendental meditation in the Hilton Hotel in London. And the Beatles go at the recommendation of George's first wife, Patty. And you mentioned earlier this was had a huge impact on the Beatles' career. It had an even bigger impact on the Maharishi's career. I mean, this guy right? Um, it's an interesting period in the Beatles' lives. I just watched a documentary, which I'll, I'll lend to you when I see you. It's called The Beatles in India. 
and they talk about when they meet the Maharishi, and then they go to Bangor in, in um, Northern England to see him speak, and it's it just unfolds. It's very interesting. But um, so there you go. You know, I'm, are you a fan of the Maharishi at all, or? Well, I think from a, a cultural and historical perspective, yes. And for the way that it steered the Beatles and popular music in general, I think it was a cool time period. I'm not sure what I think about him personally. What about you? I, I think he, you know, I, I, everything you just said, I agree. I think this introduced world music to pop music. Yeah. This is before Peter Gabriel. This is Harrison Usher. And then Harrison, of course, had already played the sitar on Norwegian Wood and um, on the Revolver album. But this is going deep into a different culture and basically saying to the world, it's okay to be from Liverpool and and dig India. And so on that level, it's it's fantastic. The Maharishi to me always seemed to be a bit of an opportunist because I yeah. mean, touring with the Beach Boys, that's kind of odd, but whatever. I mean, it it helped people. I think lots of people have benefited from meditation, transcendental meditation. It certainly introduced the concept to Western worlds and th- that's a good thing, right? Yeah, I think so. And it steered uh, pop music and popular music in an entirely new direction. And like you say, all of a sudden it was totally okay, like you say, to be Liverpool or wherever you're from and be into this music and to expose more people to this style of music, which I see absolutely nothing wrong with. Uh, Absolutely. And I think were it not for that, you know, in a weird sense, it ushered in reggae and it ushered in other forms of music to kind of say, look, there's a whole world out there of music that we're not hearing in Western civilization. And you know, Ravi Shankar is very closely linked, not that he was linked with the Maharishi, because he was not, but he was linked with India, and this is where the Beatles went, you know, went and Harrison went to Ravi Shankar for um, sitar. Did you ever hear the funny story about Ravi Shankar and Harrison sitar lessons? No, no. So first time they're having a, a session, and Ravi Shankar's trying to teach Harrison how to play the sitar. And Harrison's in his house, and the phone rings. So Harrison puts down the sitar, and he gets up and goes to the phone. And he's walking back, and he steps over the sitar, and Shankar whacks him on the leg and goes, you do not disrespect this instrument by walking over. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, can you picture some guy just whacking a beetle? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Anyway, so it was a very – it's historically a remarkably important date because, as you say, it ushered in a whole new sound for music. Um, and the cross sections, I mean, Yehidi Minowin playing with Ravi Shankar in East Meets West and, and all that stuff. But even further, you know, hearing sitar and stones and the kinks. and, oh, and absolutely. Uh, I just think it was a great thing. It really was. So, although the Beatles took a lot of criticism for it at the time. Yeah, but you know, one of my favorite Beatles songs comes out of that India trip that they did, which is Dear Prudence. What a, what a great oh, song. Love that song. And Prudence, of course, being Mia Farrow's sister, Prudence. Yeah. Look at what they wrote. Of the, look at the, the White Album they wrote while they were in India. That's true. So, I mean, historically, culturally, very, very significant. And that's why we're mentioning it on the show. We just figured we've got to talk about that. But guess what, my friend? We are at the end of our 62nd road trip. and Fantastic. As Fantastic. always, you know, I always feel like we, we keep upping our game just a little bit, which is what you want to do. Like the Beatles did. <laughs> 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 I don't. I'm not even going to comment on that one. 
<laughs> where do you go for the, where do you go with, where do you go after that comment, right? That's right. That's right. Well, you go to the toppermost of the poppermost, don't you? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but folks, uh, thanks for allowing us into your headphones as you do every week. We are very very grateful. And Rick Denis provided all the music for our show today. And anytime you want to spread word about the show, we'd be happy to have you do that or share our posts or tell a friend. If you know someone who's a rock and roll history fan, just let them know because we think you'd get a kick out of joining us on the road every week. And next week, we'll be back with episode number 63. But in the meantime, Aaron, if the man is getting you down, what do you do? You just keep on rocking because that's basically it, man. And we will see you next time, folks. <laughs>